This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Your best insight into Utah Jazz basketball and the NBA in Utah. For the next two hours, it's nothing but NBA conversation from the local front to around the association. Now let's get things rolling with Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Welcome, everybody, into the Salt City Hoops show. My name is Andy Larson. I'm the managing editor of SaltCityHoops.com. We are the ESPN Troop affiliate for the Utah Jazz, in case you haven't heard of us before. Ben Dowsett on the other side of the table, associate editor of Salt City Hoops. Brilliant man. Uh, <laughs> brilliant basketball analysis. How about There, there you go. I, I'll, I'll give you that. You were giving me too much. Before <laughs> um, we've got a fun show. There's been a lot happening news-wise in, in the jazz world today, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. We've got a couple of awesome guests. First of all, the chin balancing guy at halftime. I'm so excited for this. Uh, he, he performed at halftime on, on Monday's game against Minnesota and and drew national attention for his amazing exploits of balancing large things on his chin. Of so, course, I think I've missed like three home games in this in 2015 <laughs> so far, and of course that was one that I missed, so I didn't get to see it. I'm, I'm, I'm so deeply sorry. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, we'll get to talk to him later on the show. Nice. Uh, and so I'm excited for that interview. We'll also have Lane Vastro on the show. He does draft projection models um, later on in the 8 o'clock hour. We're going to see what he thinks of the tournament thus far, what he thinks of, about the NBA prospects in the tournament thus far, uh, and, and you know, kind of learn a little bit about what the Jazz may be facing in this NBA draft. Definitely, and some guys that might look good for them based on his models, which, by the way, as a little teaser, uh, as we noted last year when we had him on the podcast, the, his models using a certain career-long projection statistic for players has outperformed NBA general managers over the last 30 years. As right, far as so if you look at his models, they're better than the GM's draft, right? Exactly. So that that's pretty impressive given that the GM spend hours and hours and hours and interview the players and go to all the camps and whatever else his statistical models perform better than than those I mean I'm, I'm excited to talk to Lane later today definitely uh, as always this is a social show so please join us on the program uh, the best way the usual way is to tweet in to us my Twitter handle is at Andy B Larson Andy Blarson if you want to nice. you know put it all together <laughs> Uh, or Ben over here is at Ben underscore Dowsett if you want to tweet at him. If you tweet at both of us, then you make sure you get on. Um, exactly. But regardless, we've got. Let's let's first talk about the Jazz news that happened today. Yeah. So three different moves for the Jazz today, which is you know it feels kind of random that it's on March 26th that that all these different roster moves are happening, but it's actually for a very specific purpose. So first of all, uh, earlier today, Jack Cooley was signed to a multi-year contract. Then in the middle of the day, it was announced that Ian Clark was waived. And finally, later, just probably an hour after that Ian Clark news, came the news that Chris Johnson was signed to a multi-year contract. Now, what you guys are all thinking on the radio is, is who, who are those guys? I yeah. have never heard of any of them. Maybe Jack Cooley has played, you know, 10 minutes for the Jazz thus far. But uh, those other guys, who, what's going on? Ian Clark, uh, you know. Some people, I think, know that name just because he's been here for yeah, a while. Yeah, he's been here for two seasons. Uh, but you know, these are not major names. So what, what's going on here with, with the jazz? Um, Oh, I, th- I didn't know if you were asking me or if you that were was a rhetorical, rhetorical question. <laughs> but I'll answer anyway. Yeah, let's do these, it. These are, I think, your fairly standard for the most part end of the roster type moves. Uh, it's unfortunate with Ian that he, he wasn't able to gain, get, make more of a mark. I guess you could say he actually probably had his best game in a jazz uniform last night. Interestingly, or one of Maybe, them, yeah. that is like it's it's not a great crop to pick from, unfortunately, because he <laughs> hasn't had much of a chance to get into the no. lineup. Um, 
I, I do hope and actually think that there's a good chance he catches on somewhere. Not that he's going to become some you know bona fide starter or anything like that, but I think there is a a chance that we see him pick up with another NBA team. Or I saw a few people on Twitter suggest that maybe he could go overseas and make some real money now, which is possible also. Yeah, l- let me let me talk to you about just kind of the the rationale behind these moves. Like, mm-hmm. Why now? So first of all, the reason behind the Ian Clark waving is because the Jazz. His contract ends this summer, right? So he doesn't have any more contract left for next season, which means that the Jazz can't use him in a in a potential trade during this offseason, during the draft, or during free agency. So instead of, of having that, instead of having kind of this empty roster spot that the Jazz aren't going to use, even though he did play last night, he hadn't played in the previous 16 games, the reasoning, the the rationale there is to waive Ian Clark, sign someone else, namely Chris Johnson, to a multi-year deal that includes this year and next, and maybe even the next year, uh, and then you can include him in trades and have it work out so that you can use that salary as as kind of ballast to get a larger player back in, in return later on down the road. Exactly. Now, for those, just a quick note to confirm that for those who aren't aware, you can't just send and receive any any infinite number of salary in a trade. Right, and you the NBA to, salaries have to match up. Exactly. So that's what that's, what that's going to be valuable for, potentially, of course, is going to be that type of ballast, as you said. Yeah, and and so that's kind of the rationale there is as and maybe kind of gives us a little hint in what as to what the Jazz are maybe looking at doing this offseason, right? Is is they are seriously considering getting that big name, big salary player, bringing him in and adding to the Jazz's win total next offseason. Now, you know, that they did this now doesn't mean that they'll do that because it's a non-guaranteed contract for next season. Yeah. It doesn't hurt them at all. They can choose to waive Chris Johnson at any time uh, and, and ditto with Jack Cooley. But it does show that they are seriously considering it and taking the necessary steps in order to maybe make that sort of trade where you put together some non-guaranteed pieces, you put together some draft picks, and you know the Jazz have 17 future draft picks in the next four <laughs> years, which is, again, ridiculous. Yeah. Um, that's actually more, by the way, than the Philadelphia 76ers. Yeah. And the Sixers have traded you know, wins left and right for picks, right? Like, they've yeah. just... All of their good players have been traded for picks. The Jazz have done a pretty good job of trading only, well, what they need to in order to get those future assets. Definitely. Now, to be clear, the Jazz's future assets are worse than the Sixers, but that, no, they if definitely you include no, the current not players. including the players. Oh, okay, yeah, right. Just okay. the picks themselves. The picks alone, yeah. The Sixers. The Sixers have better picks, especially because they got that Lakers pick this year. Um, right. And as far as Chris Johnson, though. I and and you're totally right. There's a very good chance he's going to be one of those pieces if the Jazz do want to make a trade. But if it doesn't end up happening, I think they actually like him a bit. I think there's a very good chance he would have already been signed for the remainder of the year after his 10-day contracts a couple months ago. You remember? But the reason why that didn't happen is they needed the roster slot available for right, the, for, for the, the Cantor trade. Exactly. So. Even if this type of trade that we're talking about doesn't go down, I think there's a, at least a possibility, you know, a slight possibility that this could be a guy they want to give a real look at. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the thing is, A, you, you might as well do it because it doesn't hurt you any this season other mm-hmm. than, you know, the Ian Clark-Chris Johnson trade-off is, is not a big one. And if you're going to do it, you might as well do it with players that you like. And the Jazz really do like Chris Johnson. They really do like Jack Cooley. They really do like Bryce Cotton and Elijah Millsap. Uh, and so it kind of makes sense to do them to do that now rather than try to do it in the offseason and then you can't trade them for three months. 
Now, that's why it was today. I, I should throw that in as a side mm-hmm. note days. because the draft is 91 days from today. Uh, and you cannot trade players that have been signed for 90 days. So literally, we could see a draft day deal would be the first time that these players, Jack Cooley and uh, Chris Johnson, could be moved. Yeah. So it's. I think it's fairly standard for the most part. It's so. not that standard. I, I want to point that out, though, because a lot of NBA teams don't do it this way. Right, right. I meant for what we've seen of what the Jazz have tried to do in in two ways. One, in terms of they're kind of trying to follow that whole find the next Danny Green style thing that the Spurs have done, giving lots of guys a look out of the D-League, especially on that perimeter, seeing if one can develop into your type of 3 and D that you like. Plus, of course, as we've been talking about, setting up the pieces for what we think might potentially be a, maybe not a blockbuster, but potentially a, a significant trade over the offseason. Yeah, now they have nearly $8 million in non-guaranteed deals. It's I, I, I just want to say that it is a little bit at least creative by the Jazz yep. to be doing this because it isn't that you saw 29 NBA players signed today um, to these sort of contracts. It's really only the Jazz that have been doing this mm-hmm. and and the reason why is because they are looking to make this sort of deal. Definitely. Um, I also want to say that the Jazz's Summer League team will be really fun next it's year be great. because of all of these NBA players who are going to be, uh, I mean, literally probably... Nine players from the Jazz's roster may be on the summer league team. Yeah, it's going to be a, a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, that's that's the notes for those three guys. I just kind of wanted to explain because if any of you out there are like, what are the Jazz doing signing these ridiculous players to multi-year contracts? The Jazz are going to be terrible forever. Well, no, they can waive them at any time, and, yeah. and this is just salary cap minutia being thrown together that may help the Jazz become a better team exactly 91 days from now yep. on draft day. Cool. Let's move on to point two of the triple team. Trey Burke. Trey Burke. Trey Burke. I, I have on my note sheet, Trey Burke suffering succotash because he <laughs> has been sucking it up recently. Um, he played well last night, 9 for 19 shooting. I believe it was 20 points. But that's just another one of our whole thing that we have where Trey's good games, he shoots around 50%. Right. His bad games... We know what happens in his bad games. We've seen those recently. Yeah, to, just to clarify, Monday's game, 4 for 22. Bad game. With horrendous shooting down the stretch. It very literally cost the Jazz the win. Yeah. I, I don't think there's really any question about that. Yeah, I don't think that's an exaggeration at all in that if, particular If he game. had gone 5 for 22, I think the Jazz probably win. Yeah, well, you lose a game that close. So it's an could... overtime game, right? So yeah. if he makes any one of the regular... You know, Regulation, Regulation shots. Yeah. Yep. And then overtime, you know, that game was within two points with a minute to go. If he makes any of the ones before that or makes a three at the end. Yeah, that one was rough. <laughs> anyway, l- let's talk about Trey Burke a little bit. And uh, first of all, is he fixable? Uh, that, that, that's an interesting question. And this is something we, we were talking with David Locke a little bit about, uh, and he's been mentioning it as well. He, here's my thought on that. And. My thought is that it's a matter of degrees, okay? We know, and we've bandied about it on this program before, that shooting is one of the most variable skills among NBA players, right? Shooting can vary over time. Now, not to say that it always... Oh, if there's a butt coming, don't worry. Trey Burke... I'm going to throw in the butt now. Trey Burke has gratuitously given us a large enough sample size yeah. of his shots. Yeah. He, he makes sure that we know just exactly how well he can shoot it, and that is exactly 37%. Like yeah. that, that's, We know over 4,000 NBA shots or whatever it is. I, I don't know. It's probably not exactly that. It's probably yeah. less. But 
It's a bit less than that. <laughs> but no, it is a big number. But what, what I am saying... We know he's a 37% shooter. There have been guys before That's who bad. early in their career that have... Now, but the reason I was saying it's a, me- who, it's a measure of who degrees... Who struggled that badly? That, that's what I was going to kind of get to, is that we have seen guys who have slightly struggled before and then turned it around over the next several years. There is very, very little, if any, historical precedent for a guy who has struggled this much becoming anything approximating an above-average shooter. Yeah, I mean, we, we talk about, like, Mike Conley took a long time to develop. Uh, Chauncey Billups took a long time to develop. Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd took a long time to develop. Those guys were all 5 to 8% better shooters then when they were struggling than Trey Burke is now. Exactly. And that's that's my issue with the whole... Because that and, let's just say in a hypothetical that I think you and I would agree is extremely unlikely at this point. Let's say that Trey becomes league average shooting for a starting point guard, which I I think is incredibly unlikely, but let's say it happens within the next three, four years, something okay. like that. I think it's possible. Possible. Certainly he possible. Hard. And he oh yeah. And that's one thing I wrote an article about him and I made sure to note that at the end. None of this is fun for us to say because this guy works really, really hard and is a great guy both to talk to and his his coaches have, all smart. have great things to say about him. Very intelligent. Yeah. All of that. So the the issue is even if all that were to happen there are too many, in my opinion, other weaknesses in his game still. Right. Even, <laughs> even if you get the, the shooting work to end. I'm even talking about if you get the close shooting, like shooting near the rim, because that's one of his largest areas of weakness. In fact, he's been uh, right around 37%, I believe, not including last night's game, since the, since the not since the All-Star break even, since he was removed from the starting lineup meaning that he's playing against more bench-heavy type units more frequently. Not right. always. So he's playing f- against smaller big men and still missing 63% of layups, Which is an unbelievable number. <laughs> no, no rotation guard in the NBA has shot a figure that low over a full season at the rim in at least the last half decade. I didn't go back much further than that. There was one Gilbert Arenas season from where he barely played, really? where he was that some that lower than that or something. He was like twelve percent, which shows you how low how few right, minutes. But he, he played, played like four games or right. something. So guys that have actually played a volume of minutes, there is no precedent for them being that bad near the rim as he's been over the last two months since he left the starting lineup. And the defense, we know, is he, uh, he works very hard and has improved certain things with his positioning and footwork, but he's, he's so small. He's, has, he's got short arms for the position. He's not quick enough to jump around screens, and his, his recognition has improved, but not necessarily enough. Even if this extremely unlikely thing happens and his shooting comes back to around the average, I just think there are still a lot of hurdles there for him to be an NBA starter. I also think that his playmaking is not really there, right? And especially recently. And maybe that's just because he's moved to the bench and is now playing with you know the Jingles, Millsap types of the I world who are not finishing their shots. Mm-hmm. But he hasn't had 10 assists in a game since uh, December 5th of this season. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, you look at, like, say, Damian Lillard last night, who was, I believe, 6 for 18 shooting. You know, bad shooting night, but he found ways to get his teammates involved. He, he had 12 assists on the night. And Season so, high, I think. Yeah, and it's that sort of thing that, you know, Treyberg needs to recognize at the three, you know, I'm shooting 3 of 14. I need to pass it to my teammates right now rather than miss my next nine shots. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And it... it, it Again, it, it really sucks to say because you, I don't want it to be the case. I root for Trey as much as, it, as if not more than any other Jazz player, but it, it's looking like he has a real uphill climb towards being anything more than a spot minutes player in this league. Which is, which I, it, again, it's unfortunate, but it's the cold reality of it right now. Is that, and yes, 
point guards can develop late. You noted that in your triple team on that night is that it's it's point guards sometimes do develop later on. But again, with most of them, at least some of those signs were there earlier. We could point to in the first couple of years. Oh, well, at least he's elite at this or at least he's really good at this. What what can we say that about with Trey Burke? Yeah, I mean, kind of nothing. Pick and roll navigation, sort of. Yeah, he's a good dribbler in traffic. We can we can okay. give him that as well. But in terms of his finishing and or passing in yeah, traffic, once he gets in traffic, then what's the point? The, yeah, and those are both really bad for his level. And um, really, unless he has a large, large shooting turnaround and actually becomes above average there, which would really be almost unprecedented historically, given how bad he's been right now. I'm not sure he's ever being more than a, a bench player. Yeah, people talk about Mo Williams as a comp for him, and I don't see it because Mo Williams is a terrific shooter and Trey Burke and really is not. fast. Mo Williams is fast too. That's the thing That's is, is that Trey's not only undersized; he's he's kind of slow for being that size. Mo Williams isn't that fast. Right? I mean, he's not like a speed demon or anything like that, but he's faster than Trey. Right. Okay. Yeah, and and Trey's being his age and Mo being his age, you would yeah. hope that would not be the case. Yeah. Maybe he develops a post up game like Andre Miller. He's so short, though. <laughs> he, who can he? Who is he going to have a real physical advantage on? No and that's, when you get to when you get down to brass tacks like this, it's and again, I take no pleasure from saying any of this. He's probably we've said it before. He's probably the favorite guy of both of us to talk to in the locker room. One of them, at least. And it, it, it's it's unfortunate, but he's he's got a few things working against him. Unfortunately, namely his size and some of his physical attributes. It's definitely in my. I saw some comments on the article I wrote the other day that they thought that his, that his maturity needed to increase and things like that. I couldn't disagree more. I think that between his years is actually one of his strongest areas. Maybe not in terms of the playmaking, if you want to. Consider well, that's what that I'm a, saying. If if we're looking at on the court between the ears, does a smart player struggle that much at playmaking? And also go four for twenty two. No, and I guess when I said when I said between the years, at some point you have to like, know what shots are good and yeah, what shots aren't. I guess I meant more like maturity and willingness to work hard, willing yeah, to learn absolutely. things like that. They're I meant off that. the court, perfect. Yeah, literally court, perfect. Di- very different. Yeah, and you're right. That's it's it's hard to necessarily label that a high IQ player when those things seem to happen so frequently. Let's move on to our third point. Yeah. Jazz's offense in the last week. It's been a little bit interesting. So the Jazz have gone, I believe it's one in one in four out of their last five. Yep. And and probably the biggest reason for the struggles has been the offensive struggles. Uh and it's been Gordon Hayward's been out for a couple of those games, so that's a big deal. Obviously playing at Golden State, no one's going to win there. In fact, only two teams in the NBA have won in Golden State this year. Uh so you know, you also look at the schedule as well. But there is some stuff going on, and I, I just want to look at it. So, obviously, Gordon Hayward's out. Rodney Hood is uh, has the gastrointestinal distress uh, that's kept him out for the last two games, and he is not with the team for tomorrow's game against Denver. Uh, and so, without them, the Jazz have had a 103.30 rating for the last two games, which isn't very good. Well, um, actually, interestingly enough, that's significantly, if you just go to their last five games, where they had Hayward for a couple, for three of them, and Hood as well, it's it's significantly worse it's actually 98.9 okay over those last five games which i think s- speaks more to the competition like you said they had to play against golden right. state during, right. you know it's one of the and even one single game in five against the league's best defense is going to take that number down even though the Jazz didn't play terribly offensively against golden state i thought i thought they played all right yeah no i, I it's just so hard because they're such a good matchup yeah but I, I mean there is clearly a problem with with the jazz's offense with the ball not sticking but in, it's kind of the opposite of sticking where the jazz pass it around too much and, and find that they have three seconds left on the shot clock in fact the jazz take 14 percent of their 
shots within the last four seconds of the shot clock. The second most team takes nine percent of their possessions. Is that in for the, the last year? Four. That's for the year, I believe. Wow. Um, so, like, there's a uh, actually that may be no, that's since a counter trade. I, I right. I, Take that back. That's Still, definitely though. since a counter trade. But like big difference that's between how huge, the Jazz are doing. That's a huge gap. And, and so that's getting the Jazz are getting in a lot of late shot clock possessions. Obviously, those are much more difficult shots. And and you know they've definitely struggled. And without Hayward, even more so because then it's someone like Trey Burke or Elijah Millsap taking those shots rather than Gordon Hayward, who has been able to make those difficult ones. Yeah, absolutely. And. I think for me, uh, the largest issue is that, they, and this is something that I think Quinn Snyder needs to address with the team, and probably has as well, and it's not like it's just a flip of the switch here, but th- they need to get into their offense earlier. Mm-hmm. There are just, there's just nearly every possession, the Jazz come down, the whoever brings the ball up brings it on his side, they pass it to the middle and pass it over to the other side, and or pass it back to the original side if the other team blocks off the cross pass, and... Uh, but really, what is that first sequence doing for you in terms of actually moving the defense or forcing the defense to do anything out of the ordinary? It's really not doing anything, right? Yeah, I mean, so that that initial like pass across the top of the arc that we see, yeah. it, uh, the first point is just to change the strong side to the weak side to the strong side, and, and that does confuse defenses. Um, I think it's a, to me the more frustrating part is actually getting into that. They start that at 17 seconds too yeah. frequently instead of 20 seconds. Yeah, but and and th- for me, unless you're making those passes more quickly and with a little more diversion, like if a team knows that's coming every single time, they're not going to be fooled by you changing the strong side on them, you know. And the, and teams know that's what the Jazz are going to be doing every time they come up the floor now. I I don't mind it, but I would love to see some counter. We all know how I love counters. Hmm. I would love to see some counters maybe get in there so, to where looks like they're going to run the pass, and then they run a little weak side action on the other side, toss it out. I don't know. Um, in general, also, I think that they should, and it's not like they haven't been re- recently, but I think there are other ways to get Derek Favors more involved without necessarily just tossing it into him in the post and saying, go to work, and everybody else running aside. I think his strength in terms of moving to the basket with the ball that we've seen, I think you could even throw him in screens where you have either Rudy or you have a smaller guy come set a screen for him on the weak side where he could curl around it, catch the ball moving to the basket like the, like you'll see for Gordon or somebody like that. Other things, little diversionary things, things on the baseline as well. I'd like to. I think Derek is flashing a real offensive skill set recently. And when you don't have great, oh, he's been awesome. And when you don't have Gordon in there, I think I'd like to see him be a little more involved in setting things up. Off, not always just here's the ball in the post, do your thing. Yeah, the Jazz haven't run that many necessarily plays for him. Mm -hmm. Um, And at least that's what it seems like. And maybe Trey Burke is taking over those plays and, and it Could doesn't be. ever get in Derek Favors' hands. Maybe the defense is reading that, knowing that Derek Favors is really the Jazz's only legitimate offensive threat right now and doubling him or, or preventing yeah. him, posting him up in the post, uh, or sorry, fronting him in the post. We saw that a little bit with Minnesota. Um, I also think that it was interesting last night, Portland's fourth quarter run came with, uh, they had Durrell Wright, who's just a small forward, guarding Rudy Gobert and all of his length and size, just mm-hmm. because Rudy Gobert has not been a threat on the offensive end. Yeah, and I could see that as a problem going forward for the Jazz because I actually think Favors himself has done a reasonable enough job in those situations of defending a, a smaller player on the on the perimeter, but the simple fact that he has to do that pulls him away from the rim. 
and that's one of the best rim protectors in the league. You know, you do have another one in Rudy, but teams can run diversionary actions, and if he has to come over to help on a, a wing who's being beat, all of a sudden his guy's wide open, and Derek isn't anywhere close to fill in. And last night they had LaMarcus Aldridge, who in, in, can stay in the mid-range and then bring Rudy out from the paint, too. Exactly. So then you have no paint protectors mm-hmm. whatsoever. And that that's obviously a real struggle for the Jazz, who gave up 37 points in last night's fourth quarter. All right, well, that's our triple team to start off the Salt City Hoop show. Coming up next, we're going to be talking with Kevin Shiflett, the, the chin-balancing guy yes. from Monday's halftime show. If you were at Monday's game or have seen highlights of it, you don't want to miss this interview. Check it out next on Salt City Hoops. You're listening to the Salt City Hoop show on ESPN 700. Talking hoops and the association, this is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the South City Hoop Show. Andy Larson here, Ben Dowsett with us as well. Just want to give you an update. Wisconsin 63-60 right now against University of North Carolina. Uh, they're on a 7-0 run in the last minute to take the lead. Five minutes left in that game. Uh, so, anyway, just wanted to give you the update there. But on on the line, thank you. On the line, we've got Kevin Shiflett. He is better known since I started calling him this literally <laughs> this week. As the chin balancing guy from Monday's halftime show. Kevin, are you there? I'm here. Hello. Hello, well, and thank you for joining us on the show. I I just have so many questions after Monday's <laughs> performance. Like that was that was a remarkable set of talents you displayed. And I I, I again I just I, I have so many questions for you. First of all, how did you start doing this? How did you decide I, I'm gonna start balancing large objects on my chin? Well, first of all, thanks, Andy, for having me tonight. I actually started when I was 10 years old. I, my family and I, we went to the circus down in Phoenix, Arizona. That's where I'm from. And there was a clown there that balanced many different objects on his chain. And so in a 10-year-old mind, I just loved it. Within the next couple of weeks, my brother and I, inspired by that, and remembering what had happened at the circus, we, we just tried to broom, and he couldn't get it to stay, but... My, my broom just stayed on my chin and started from there. It's just something you're born with. It, it's, you, it's a genetic talent. You then. have a balanceable chin, essentially. I, I guess so. <laughs> so, all right. So for those of us, including, unfortunately, myself, because I missed one of my, my few home games that I've missed recently on Monday night, what were the items that you balanced on, or some of the bigger items, I should say, that you balanced on your chin on Monday night specifically? Some of the bigger items, I, I did a 10-foot table. I did a... A ladder, a hand truck like a dolly. I do a lot of different things. Have you ever had something fall on you? <laughs> and have you ever been injured? Have you ever sustained any legitimate injuries at this? You know, it's funny. That's one thing I pride myself on. I, I've never dropped anything on accident. What? On purpose, if it's too heavy to lower down, I, I'll drop it on purpose off my chin. And luckily, at the same time, I've never hurt myself, except for one time. I had a pretty big log that I was balancing on my chin, and when I went to drop it on purpose, the the edge of it caught my chin enough that it scraped my the skin on my chin to give me kind of like a a goatee scar. So the worst but thing that's about it. That's the only time. That's amazing. Like that's. <laughs> I mean, the fact that you do it is amazing enough to me. But I would have just generally assumed there was an accident or two at some point, just because you know even the best magicians in the world have the occasional accident with their tricks, don't they? Like the that's uh, that's completely remarkable to me. The worst thing you've ever sustained balancing these massive objects on your chin is a, a scraped chin, <laughs> which is yeah. exactly what so you'd I, expect. Sorry, go ahead, Kevin. I've been well. I've been definitely 
lucky that nothing's happened. I've, uh, yeah. The only thing that sometimes it does hurt if it's a pointy object. I've right. done different swords, and I've done, if it's a ladder that has a sharp edge, just the weight of it kind of hurts, but it does, um, not much, but I can feel it. But it, it hasn't hurt me enough to stop. <laughs> so, Kevin, you were the winner of the Jazz's Halftime Talent Show contest, right, in order to be able to present this talent on, on Monday. Have you presented this for people before, or is this kind of your big coming out, I guess, as, as a chin balancer? Well, the Jazz was definitely my biggest show ever. Uh, since I began doing it, I, kind of throughout high school, I, I started doing different shows for various community events and church talent shows, but this by far was my biggest opportunity, and I'm very grateful to the Jazz for, for letting me do it. Do you, do you think you'll have maybe future interest from the, have you received any yet? Because, I mean, this went national. Like, this this got vined and was all up over Twitter and everything like that. Do you think that that might be, either from the Jazz or other sports franchises, might be something in your future? I sure hope so. I, I actually, I, I don't know if it's, if it's okay. I Because people have been telling me, like, that was awesome. You should really try to go further. I actually have, I now have chinbalancing.com. Oh, well, nice. I have some information on there. If anybody does want me to come out, I, I would more than willing to come out and, and share my talent with others. We are both typing in chinbalancing.com yep. right now um, into our, our computers. I, I want to ask, Kevin, how do you find the the center of balance of these objects? Like, I can't even imagine holding and balancing a ladder or, like, a wheelbarrow, the edge of a wheelbarrow on my hand, you know what I mean? Like, how is it that you're able to just balance these things w with your chin? I, I guess... Uh, I'm asking you to reveal your secret in some sense, but I, I, I just, from a physics point of view, it seems impossible. Yeah, you know, I, when as people balance poles on their hands, you kind of look at the top and you, you move your hand according to where the, the top of the stick goes. It's basically the same kind of idea, I guess. The, I imagine if I'm doing like a chair or a wheelbarrow or ladder, I kind of imagine a stick going from my chin to the top point and keep that stick straight, if that makes sense. That is just, this is really intriguing to me because I, I'm always interested by these things that I could never, ever, ever do. You could in, do. In my now, wildest Kevin dreams. just revealed his, his secret. I, I think this he is... revealed it in, in, in the spoken word, not necessarily <laughs> in the actual. It's, it's easier than said than done, I think is what they say. Now, do you have uh, in your memory bank a, 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 a crown jewel, like a, a, your, your greatest achievement, like a, one particular item that you've balanced at one point that was like the, the, the most difficult or the craziest that people might think of? Well, you know, the hardest thing to do is balance my checkbook. <laughs> no, um, no, but I, ladders, I love doing ladders of all different sizes because they, they look awesome from an outside perspective, but also from my perspective, that I really love doing them. Okay. But I don't have anything in particular that I um, would say is my best thing I've ever done, but by far my best event that I've ever done was Monday night. And so at the very end, your grand finale was climbing up on top of the ladder and then doing one of the Jazz Bear signs up there. Was that frightening a little bit? It seemed like you were almost wobbling off the edge, and it, and it, was, it was a little bit scary for you. Yeah, by far, like... All the things I'm very comfortable with, and the height was fine, but definitely that sign that I did, it was a pretty horizontal sign. <laughs> so as I'm up there, I didn't want to go too far to the right or to the left or backwards because it was quite a fall down. But I was able to 
that lasted for a few seconds. I wish I could have done it longer. But it's a different sign. Perhaps I'll be able to do it longer next time. I'm looking at the, I'm on your website now, and by the way, it's it's really well done. Because if you're telling us that you just put this up, like it's actually it's a really well done website. Uh, the- oh, I, thank you. Actually, I have to give compliments to my brother. He works for GoDaddy, Alan. Yeah. Well, there you go. And so he helped me very much, okay. my brother Alan. So I'm, I'm looking at it, and there's a picture of you balancing a ladder as you, one of your signature items there, as you say. Are you able to move around while you do this, or would that just be like suicide? Would that be like, would that ruin the balance? No, I can move around. I, I, at the game, and what I like to do is, while I'm balancing something, is do a 360 so that everybody can have a perspective of what I'm actually doing. But I can move, I can talk. So yes, I, I don't. I can move around. You can, you can talk. talk? <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, and, uh, depending on the weight, it makes it a little bit harder. The lighter it is, I can definitely talk and move my chin. One thing I definitely always try to chew gum so I can keep my my jaw strong. But yeah, uh, I can talk while I'm doing stuff balancing. Do you have a Twitter, Kevin? <laughs> I do. Um, my Twitter is. I play racquetball. I love racquetball, and so my. Twitter is actually at Kevin. Oh, nice. I just found you. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I am now following you on Twitter and am going to encourage many other folks to do the same. Well, Ben, ben is stoked. I was stoked from the very beginning. You, you got the national attention on Monday for your performance, and you deserved it. I, I think you're going to be a, a – this is going to be your full-time job. You're going to be a traveling circus performer, if you will. It's not a circus performer. It's chin balancing. It's, it's, it's a high-class act. Exactly. I, I, well, I I'm excited that, for yeah, it, Kevin. I was actually really – Thank you. I was honored. Um, David Locke, he, he compared me. I actually had heard of her, but I wasn't familiar with her too much. But Red Panda, he yeah. compared me to her, which I was very grateful. That is indeed that. the highest honor of Halftime Act I'll be compl- I'll be completely honest. I, I haven't seen yours live yet, Kevin, which I'm going to find YouTube videos as soon as we're done with this segment. But the And I have seen Red Panda, and if if the one if what I'm hearing and imagining in my mind here is what yours actually looks like, I'm more impressed by yours. No, no. Red, I, I'm sorry, Kevin. Don't take this the wrong way, but Red Panda is the Michael Jordan of halftime shows. And you, you sir, are no Red Panda, but you're, you're still great. You're, you're, right. you know, you're top five in my mind. However, we have to respect the greats, the recently retired Red Panda. <laughs> oh, she's retired now? Yeah. Yes. Oh. All well, right. If you, thank you. But as you are, if you, um, I need to upload more videos to YouTube, but there is one that's quick um, that you can find if you just type in Kevin Wicked Talent. I was actually <laughs> here in Salt Lake trying out for some Wicked tickets, and I w- went around the Salt Lake Valley balancing various objects in front of different Salt Lake landmarks. So if you type in on, on YouTube, Kevin Wicked Talent, it's a quick video that you can see. I do various things. Yeah, I found it. I'm going to watch that like, <laughs> momentarily. All right, he's going to watch it during the break. we got to go ahead and take one, but we'll check it out. Check out Kevin's website at chinbalancing.com. The Chin Balancing Guy, everyone. Kevin Shilfoot, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you very much. All right, so thanks again, Kevin, for joining us. Uh, on our next segment, we're going to talk about the front office rankings from ESPN, where the Jazz rank in terms of their front office, and then where Quinn Snyder matches up uh, against the NBA's 30 coaches. Where does he stack up in those rankings? That's coming up next on the Salt State Hoop Show on ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Back into the Salt City Hoop Show. Andy Larson here, Ben Dowsett on the other side of the table. We're watching two things during the break. First, this Wisconsin-UNC game. Wisconsin up 73-70 
on uh, what is it? The Sweet 16 now. Thank you. Um, We both picked Wisconsin, you and I, Ben. Dave, our producer... Oh, no, I, I, don't put that on. I have no idea who I picked. I stopped paying attention after the first day when my bracket was literally sub-500 after the first day. You know, I thought you were an expert, Ben. I never claimed to be an expert on college of any kind. No, I, not at all. On college. I'm, I'm, I, watch, I will be watching the Utes game tomorrow night and rooting for the Utes as long as they're in. That's my all matter. Right. But other than that, I really don't care. And, and it's a crapshoot anyway. But our producer, Dave, took... Uh, UNC here, so there's there's a lot big. really at stake between at least the two of us. Oh, he missed the free throw. So Wisconsin up 73-70, 30 seconds left in Wisconsin ball. It looks like they'll have to foul, and I hope you know we'll see. It's college; they may somehow turn it over here. Um, and then of course you're watching some amazing chin balancing videos. I already did as well. That's yeah, that was awesome. I sent out a thing on Twitter. You guys got to go follow Kevin. He's he deserves more than 19 followers, which is how many. Well, he, he just had. started his Twitter account like last week. Yeah, so we got to get him some more followers. Yeah. I want to talk about this series of ESPN articles that have come out in the last week or so um, that rank all the different NBA teams uh, in terms of their front office executives and their coaches and and talk about those for a little bit. So first of all, let's talk about the front office executive. Um, The Jazz's rank was number 15 in terms of executives Mm -hmm. and actually 15 with the front office overall. What do you think about that? For the Jazz to be in the middle of the pack with Dennis Lindsay, Kevin O'Connor in there as well, Justin Zanuck. I mean, do you think that accurately reflects their performance thus far? I think you can quibble with uh, a few specific teams. Like, for instance, I think having Cleveland ahead of them is completely ridiculous. I think Cleveland. They did be make in, a good free agent acquisition. They may, yeah, they made a good one, but did <laughs> they? Was that in their power at all? Like that was pretty much just like LeBron deciding to come back, and then everything that's happened from there has been a cascading effect. Um, but that. That's, you know, that's a minor quibble. That's one team. I think there might be a team or two below them that you could argue could be above them, depending on your thoughts on the Sixers. The Sixers are lower than them, and you could maybe have the Sixers higher. I also think Oklahoma City being significantly higher than the Jazz is kind of interesting because outside drafting, they draft. They have if if this was a drafting only category, they would be number one. Yeah, but but in those terms, are ridiculously good drafts. Oh no, I know, but everything else they've done basically has been awful. But again, it's picks. enough. They've they've single handedly built that through the front office, built a small market team by exactly how good those drafts were. That's true. Right? And so you have to say, like, if, if drafts are a 10 for Oklahoma City, and I think they are, then, like, the the negatives of the James Harden trade and maybe some of their free agent signings not being up yeah. to snuff uh, are, are small minutes compared to, yeah. small minutia compared to the great drafting that they've had. Yeah, I think this is, like, uh, a friend of the program, Seth Partner, likes to say that he his, in his mind, that in as far as coaches, there are, you know, five really good ones, five really bad ones or so, and then the rest kind of are in a very similar category, and I think this is kind of the same type of thing. I think there are a few franchises up at the top that have really separated themselves. The Spurs, of course. I agree with Golden State being high up there. Houston has also done a really good job. I think Atlanta should actually have been fourth, personally. I think they've done an incredible job over there. And then there are your teams at the bottom, Brooklyn and the Knicks being the main ones, and Sacramento, I think, is joining that conversation, who are complete train wrecks and absolutely deserve to be at the bottom and then there's a number of teams who I think you could rank them in not any order but I think it's it's you're quibbling when you're when you're trying to separate the rest of those teams you know what I mean yeah I mean I I think Neil O'Shea is underrated he was one who you didn't mention and he's someone who's 
really rarely talked about when you talk about really good general managers. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the decision to draft Damian Lillard, uh, sign Wesley Matthews, I I just think that he has rarely made a misstep. And and hiring Terry Stotts, by the way, was a brilliant move as well. Yeah, that's true. Um, I I just want to give him a shout out because I I do think that he is often overlooked. He's, you know, people talk about Daryl Morey being a great GM. I think Neil O'Shea uh, has has done at least a good of a job. Yeah, and the Heat are at fourth. How many people do you think could even name their GM? I think most people <laughs> just assume it's Pat Riley, which it actually isn't. It's Andy Ellisberg, but I wonder how many people could name that. Yeah, I, I don't think I knew that. Okay. I mean, it's... Now, I don't know how many decisions there Andy Ellsberg is making compared yeah. to Pat Riley, though. Yeah, not necessarily. So what about the coach rankings, then? Yeah, um, so Quinn Snyder is 18 there. And, you know, I some people would see that as a slight. And you've talked about Quinn Snyder as a Coach of the Year candidate. Uh, not this year. I think 18 is a pretty darn good number for a rookie coach on a losing team. Yeah, and... I Again, I think there are a couple that you could quibble with. Like, I think having him below Kevin McHale, for instance, is is kind of weird. I think if you gave... I think Kevin McHale does good stuff in Houston. Mm, sometimes, I guess. I also think uh, a guy like uh, Dwayne Casey, who has done some good things, but also does several, especially with his defense, some really unorthodox things that haven't worked all that well. Yeah. I think a guy like George Carl is mostly just in there based on precedent because, of course, we don't know how he is in the in today's game necessarily. Well, I mean, it was we two years ago. Yeah, I know. yeah we, we know who George Carl is as a coach, and he's a yeah. pretty good coach. Yeah, and, you know, I think, again, exact same thing. I think there are a few guys right at the top who, as Seth, uh, Seth Partnell says, you know, Greg Popovich, I think, I don't know that I would have actually had Budenholzer at two. I think I would have had Carlisle at two. I have two. Carlisle at two, Carlisle yeah, is, and he's at four. To me, that's far too low. I would also, and I, uh, we're going to get there. We're going to do some awards later on, but I, th- I think Brad Stevens is going to be one who rises in the next little while. Same with Frank Vogel, although I think many people would have Vogel higher than ninth, which is where he's currently at on the list. Uh, again, I think you can quibble with some of them, and but here's the thing. I think Quinn... Quinn's ranking is, go- which I tweeted earlier, is going to be comical in a couple of years because I think in a couple of years he's going to have a legitimate argument to be in the top five of this list. See, and I, I don't think everyone's going to laugh at you know what. Well, no, I, but I think it's going to. We're going to look back and be like, well, that's the lowest he's ever going to get rated, eighteenth. Like, okay, but I mean, so we've got Brad Stevens and Frank Vogel are two young good coaches as well. Um, I, I mean, I think Terry Stotts is great there in Portland. Tom Thibodeau is an interesting one, right? Yes. Like you just come. Da- what do you come down on the Tim D- Thibodeau the, I come, argument? I come down on. I think he's. I mean, he's a revolutionary defensive coach. I think most who are in the know recognize that he is to defense what Mike D'Antoni was to offense in the in the mid two thousands. You know, he changed the way the game is played defensively by all thirty teams in the league. That said. There are a number of in-game coaching elements at which I believe he's he's lacking, and I believe that it's no coincidence that so many of their key players continue to get hurt year after year after year because he is absolutely running them into the ground. He's uh, it, and I think that's a thing that you have to consider with a coach is that player longevity is at the, at the forefront currently in the NBA. It's a thing that we focus a lot on is how to keep these guys as good as possible for as long as possible and when you're you know he there was a wasn't there a period last year where he played Jimmy Butler 40 48 minutes a game like 10 straight games or something like that I don't remember exactly there was That sounds like something he would do. Yeah, there was some stretch like that and it's just like at this point guy 
you got to recognize that, that that's not how it's done in the NBA anymore and that there's concrete data suggesting that that makes your players more vulnerable to injury. I, I think it's really funny that there are two interim coaches currently in the NBA, James Borrego and Melvin Hunt, uh, and those two are at 27 and 28, leaving Byron Scott, the coach of the Los Angeles Lakers, and Derek Fisher, coach yeah. of the New York Knicks, are two most famed franchises, maybe two of the three, let's put it that way. And... Uh, they are so bad that they are significantly below guys who are have been coaching for two weeks. Yeah, I'm actually. I would actually not have Fisher dead last. Really? I, well, I would have Fisher You're... almost in the unknown category because I don't know that you can judge him based on what they've done this year. Really? I mean, he hasn't done a great job, but the roster they've put in front of him is a clown show. No, like, but that... that's true of. I don't know. That's true of like Flip Saunders too. Yeah, to a point. I mean, if it was me, I would have Byron Scott dead last personally because I think he's more. He prove it has a proven track record of being clueless. That's much longer than Derek <laughs> Fisher. That's true. I. I mean, I think we saw a little bit of cluelessness from Jason Kidd last season when he coached the Brooklyn Nets uh, and he's been significantly better since moving to Milwaukee. And, That's and very true. I would also have Scott Brooks lower, but anybody who reads me frequently knows that about me already. Yeah, you are maybe the world's biggest Scott Brooks hater. With good reason. I have very, very good <laughs> points to back it up, I will say. Um, although, I gotta go, I gotta say this, which is against my nature, admitting, not that I'm wrong, but that he, they've, <laughs> they've done a better job in the last few weeks, in the last couple of months even maybe, of getting some actual offense running, which is kind of cool for them. But you're not wrong. Yeah, no, of course I'm not wrong. I'm never wrong. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and take a break. On the other side, we're going to be talking to Lane Vastro about his NBA draft projection models. Excited for that conversation. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. On the Salt City Hoops show, my name is Andy Larson. Ben Dowsett over here on the other side of the table. Uh, first of all, I just want to let you, give you an update. Wisconsin did end up winning the game. Thus making my bracket more accurate than Dave's. Yes. Um, I unfortunately did not win the ESPN $700 million contest, though. Yeah, sad Like face. most of us. I know. <laughs> Our guest might have won it. Who knows? <laughs> That's true. Let's go ahead and talk to him. Lane Vashro. He does the draft projections on Nylon Calculus. Just updated his uh, projection rankings. And again, I, I we mentioned this earlier in the show, but his rankings, if you look at the last few years, have actually outperformed the NBA general managers in the draft. Uh, so we're very excited to have him on. Lane, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? Good. All right. So... Want to get, first of all, just kind of a brief explanation of what your models are, what kind of information you're putting into them, um, what fans could should expect of them, and, of course, where they can find them as well. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's uh, just some uh, regression models that I use. I build using uh, college data going back to 1990. Um, it includes all your sort of standard box score stuff as well as um, team data for context, uh Size, height, weight, athletic measures—pretty um, pretty much, you know, every everything that's publicly available is worked into there. And it's these models are used to assign value, expected values of what these players are going to contribute in the NBA. Okay, based you, on how past players that look like them have done. Definitely, and you've got a couple of different sort of outputs, right? That your that your mm -hmm. model ca comes to. You want to tell us sort of a, what a few of those different ones are? Yeah, I've, I've sort of the the flagship one is is pretty much exactly what I just described, and then the 
there's another that I also include a, a variable that accounts for basically the the, the scouting consensus that takes the, the you know the, the expected ranking in the mock drafts and stuff like that and works it in and then um, the model tries to find it, it, it you know it comes to the fact that these guys know what they're talking about but then it also tweaks it back and forth on different things for saying you know they tend to overrate this underrate that um, and then another that gives the likelihood of a player reaching certain benchmarks either a bust a bench player a starter a stud or a star and it gives a a percentage likelihood that a player is going to reach each level. So, like, for example, just so our audience is aware, you have the the chance that D'Angelo Russell becomes a star as 75%, um, yeah. which is which is one of the highest in recent memory, right? Yeah, yeah. I, um, it is one of, you know, so my, my data goes back 25 years. Um yeah, the the it's a very short list ahead of him. The only the only guard ahead of him is Kerry Payton. Oh, okay. Um, and what didn't Shaq didn't Shaq have your highest? Shaq was a Shaq was a ninety one percent. Wow. Star. He was the highest. That is a, I mean, that nine percent is is about the chance that he, you know, breaks his leg in this rookie season. Yeah. Uh, he he was pretty. I mean. He, I mean there, and, and that, I think that makes sense. There really wasn't any doubt. Yeah, definitely. What now, is it that your model finds so appealing about D'Angelo Russell compared to like a Emmanuel Moutier or, or you know someone like that who doesn't have that sort of star potential or likelihood? Right. Well, I guess I, I mean, should say with, with Moutier, Moutier, the, the problem is you know his, his contact. I don't. It's tough to tough to get good predictions when when we're talking about guys in the Chinese right. um, league. But but for some other guys. Um, what stands out? Well, one thing is uh, guards who look really good tend to get a little more high star, but then also um, a little more likely to bust as well. They're sort of the higher higher variance guys. Um, but D'Angelo just does he does so much well, and, and really just guys who guys who have the combination of traits like he, he has guys who can guards who can pass and score at that kind of efficiency. At that young of an age, there's there's really not many who don't end up being special players. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I think the the push has the top two players you have on your list are him and and Carl Towns. And I think there's been a it was widely assumed for a while that Jaleel Okafor would be the consensus number one there. And I think that consensus has somewhat changed. You you mentioned a little bit, and this this these kind of tie together a bit. You mentioned that you have one model, which I believe you call the humble model, that that also mm-hmm. factors in scouting consensus. So like Draft Express and Chad Ford's big board, and maybe a couple others there. Um, and I actually saw some tweets from you earlier today that were kind of alluding to the fact that this year especially like way more than most recent years or maybe any other year had the most similarity between your raw model and the humble model that factors in that scouting consensus is why do you think that might be is there a chance it's just coincidence or is there a chance maybe that maybe not you directly or maybe it is that the those who do this sort of scouting have maybe started to shift the way they think about these things and use maybe some of the same types of methods right. that you're using. Well, I'd like to think that it's because um, you know the league is is trending more analytic, but you know if if you just went back and looked at the the preseason mock drafts, um, I think they would actually conform pretty well to what my model's saying right now. I think really what happened is just. All the guys who are supposed to be good, um, I'd say with the, with the exception of Cliff Alexander, um, all the guys who were the highly touted prospects who were supposed to come in and be great, they, were, they came in and they were great. 
Um, it's just it, that's, it doesn't usually happen like that. Usually, you know, half of them kind of struggle. Some just oh, we didn't know we didn't know he had this hole in his game. That kind of thing. This this season, everybody kind of lived up to the expectations. And then you know, you, there's really one one case in particular with D'Angelo Russell, where a guy who was who pretty highly touted, um, but not at that top, came in and really dominated. But he did it in such a way where you know you don't need numbers to tell you that he's been a special player. Uh, I want I want to ask you about two Utah guys in particular because of course we're on the air in Utah on the right. home of the Utes uh, and on Delon Wright and, and Jacob Pertle. Uh, what your thoughts on them are? What your models' thoughts on them are? You know, and and what you see them becoming in the NBA? Yeah, well, I I actually um, I really like both of them, um, and my models like Delon Wright both both seasons. Um, I really thought he should have come out last season. Hmm. Um, and I think, I think he's actually probably the um, yeah I, I think he's he is the the biggest outlier of the guys who are really considered at all in the first round in terms of my my model thinks he's better than where he's currently being mocked. Okay. Um, he 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 rates as a, a lottery pick, you know, not at the very top, but he definitely rates as a as a, as a fringe top ten level player. And and why is um, that? What what inputs are are kind of getting that? Well, I think I think a big part of it is um, the numbers really like guys who put up a well-rounded box score, and that's definitely what he does. He 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 gets everything. He's he's collecting assists. He's scoring with a lot of efficiency, especially at the rim. Um, he's he's um, he's collecting rebounds. He's getting blocks. He, you know, he's he's doing a little bit of everything, and that always looks really good. Um, and I think shooting is is one of the sort of factors that uh, often explains a lot of the difference between consensus and the draft models. And the draft models tend to not be as concerned about about shooting as scouts are going to be. And that's kind of his one hole, I think, is his outside shot. So I think, I think that kind of explains the discrepancy there. Also, I think. I think he's. I think he's just playing a better player than he's getting credit for, and I think the reason he's getting knocked is because he went that JUCO route. So, so he kind of missed the early hype train, and it never, it never really caught up. Even though I, I think he's clearly one of the best players in the country now. So we can call it right now, basically, uh, Delon Wright, twenty twenty one Finals MVP with the Spurs <laughs> after, after, yeah. they, after they draft him this year. Let's let's go with that. Yeah. No, I think I think. Uh, I think I, I hope he gets a chance to play next year because I, I think he could be, um, you know, if, if he gets time, I think he could be a potential rookie of the year candidate or something like that. I think he could be. I think he could be contributing on an NBA team tomorrow. Okay. How about uh, how about I don't even know how to say. Is it Jakob Pertle? Is that is that the guy? <laughs> yeah Pertle? Yeah, he's uh, um, he does really well. Actually, if, if you rank by, so I take the average of my models and give sort of a, an overall score to get a ranking, and. Uh, Delon Wright comes in as the 11th best prospect of the guys who who were pretty sure are declaring, and Pirtle comes in as the 10th. So they're right next to each other. Oh, okay. Um, oh, by the way, something that might be interesting for Utah folks is both seasons, Delon Wright's top, because I also do player comparisons, the, the top comparison for Delon Wright is actually Andre Miller. Huh. Um, cool. Which, you know, it, it, some, it seems like a weird comparison a little bit, Um yeah. Me, but but for whatever reason, they just they they seem to put up some very similar numbers. 
I mean, I can um, kind of see it as kind of like a box score stuffer kind of thing that you know Andre yeah, Miller did heady, that. Yeah, any player always involved in everything. So the um, so the Utes are going to lose in the title game to Kentucky this year. Is, <laughs> is that what you're telling me? That, that's that, that's actually that's what my bracket says. That's what my bracket says too. I'm glad me and Lane are on the same page okay. here. Utah like in the yeah. in the final, baby. <laughs> but uh, but but yeah, Pirtle Pirtle looks really good. I have him as um, you know after after uh, Okafor and Towns are off. After after Oakford Towns, Stein and Kaminsky, those are the bigs I have. And actually, I have have him too. But so so there's a lot of bigs at the top. But still, he's one of he's in that group at the top. He's he's one of the better players. Okay. And it looks like he uh, he looks like he's coming out now. I thought he wasn't, um, but now it sounds like he might be from the last I heard. I have I, there's I a lot of know. yeah a lot of people here say that they don't think he should that they think he should spend another year in school. My thought is if you're one of those fringe lottery guys that's got you know a uh, lot of unknown about you like he does i th- i think there's as good of a chance of you dropping next year as there is of you rising yeah. plus you plus you could get yeah, hurt no. plus that's an extra yeah. year of 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 earning power that you're taking out of your hands i think there's a good chance he comes out this year you mentioned okafor and i just real quick this this wasn't one of the pre-questions that we had but i just wanted to get your brief thoughts on him do you i look at this guy and i admittedly i don't watch as much college as a lot of people and i am no expert by any means but the games i have seen yes he is absolutely dominant down low he's got footwork and a touch on the block that you just shouldn't have at that age and size and all that but to me all this looks like is like a really really glorified version of al jefferson it, he can't defend the rim at all. He's really slow, mobile, in ter- lateral movement. He can't shoot at all. Do you see this as a player that can be successful at the NBA level, even if he never develops those skills? Right. Well, yeah. Al Jefferson's a common comparison, and I, I, I think it's more the comparison people come to because it's it's almost impossible to find a good comparison for him. Because mm-hmm. you know, unlike Al Al, Al Jefferson, um, well, on the minus side, he's he's not the rebounder. Or the shot blocker that Big Al is, um, he hasn't really flashed the, the the ability to hit the mid range jumper that Al has. Um, but then on the plus side, he's not a black hole either. He you know he gets the ball back out to teammates, and he can he can put it on the court quite impressively for a guy his size and do other things that Big Al can't. So um, he's he's really just an impossible prospect for me. The numbers like him. He's he's um, He's you know two or three depending on how you want to how you want to look at him, but he's absolutely in that conversation with Russell and Bounds. Okay. Um, if you go and you and you you know I was I looked through my data, so, you know, so we're talking twenty five years of data, going through looking at um, at, at all, all the information that we have, speaking to what a guy you know how good a guy is at scoring in the post. I think you can make a really convincing argument that. Uh, Jill Okafor this season has been the best scoring big man, big man in college basketball in the last 25 years. I'm not adjusting wow. for age. I'm saying the best scoring big man in college basketball. That's amazing when you consider that he's 19. That's yeah, that is a um, bit crazy. And that you know, even if his skills maybe don't necessarily lend themselves to the evolving NBA game, I think that sounds like that's that's enough on its own to make him extreme. Right. Especially which, as you mentioned, right. he is a very good passer, which helps. Like that's that is yeah. a, a major difference from an Al Jefferson type. But then you, but then yeah, you look at then you look at his um, his his, his uh, weaknesses in um, shot blocking and defensive rebounding. Shot blocking in particular, this is something that. Um, 
it has a really high fidelity. If you if you were not good at blocking shots as a freshman in college, the odds of you becoming even an average NBA shot blocker are rapidly approaching zero. It's it's just it's not something you learn. Okay. Um, if 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 Jaleel Okafor, given given his block rate in college, becomes an above average NBA center in terms of collecting blocks, it will be the first time ever that a guy. <laughs> With the numbers he has, has done it. Okay. Um, so, so, so you have this reverse side where he's doing a lot of things that um, that are just don't work for a, a starting caliber NBA center. And then, you know, he shoots what fifty percent free throws. He hasn't really demonstrated any stretch game. So, I mean, he's clear, and he's clearly a five. You know, he's not going to be a guy who can move to the four, and he's not going to be a guy who can mix things up and stretch from the five. So he creates issues, but at the same time, he's a very, very special player. So it's really difficult to know what to do with him. Definitely. Now, the Jazz specifically, I don't know how much you've seen of them this year, and we also have theorized at points that this is a summer where they very well may be making some moves, and their their pick this year could be a very valuable piece, and they may not make the pick. But if they do, hypothetically... They we expect them at this point to be probably in that eight to twelve thirteen ish type range, probably on the mm-hmm. the lower end of that, like ten, eleven, twelve, somewhere in there. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of your models and of course what you've seen, plus their needs, who who do you like for them? And I want my one specific question was about, and I'm probably pronouncing this wrong too, but Kelly Uber or Ubre or however you pronounce yeah. his name. Um, yeah, what what yeah. would you think of him as a potential NBA player and as a what you with what you've seen of the Jazz as a potential fit with them? Yeah, I like Ubre. Um, he, uh, um, <laughs> speaking of of, uh, of player comparisons, I think he draws Matt Harpreet as, as a <laughs> comparison. But uh, which <laughs> I don't like that one, but I, I thought I'd throw it out there. Um, but uh, but but yeah, I like him. He's he's probably my my least favorite of of the wings at the at the top of the draft here. But I like all of them, so so that's not as as much of a knock as it might sound. Um, so I, I would be hoping that, a you know, for whatever reason, a Jesse Swinslow or Stanley Johnson falls. Um, the other guy, maybe Mario, Mario Hazonia might work as a, right. to fill that role. Um, he seems like maybe a better fit in terms of the skill set he offers. I don't know. He can really shoot, um, right? I've, I haven't seen anything of him, but I've heard, I've read that he can really shoot the ball. Yeah, he's, he's a, he, he can shoot and he's a pretty freakish athlete. Okay. Um, so, so that's and but he's a bit of a. I think most of the question marks with him are are he's kind of a, kind of a cocky dude, kind of a hothead kind of thing. So he's a he's he, he's a fun character. He would he would be an interesting one to have it, have come it, aboard. It may be that the Jazz need someone like that. Him and Rudy Gobert together would be a pretty <laughs> interesting time. Yeah. All right, well, I want to ask you about kind of your other projects going on, because I know you've got a lot going on on Nylon Calculus, the coaching network. I know you've got the prospect comparison tool. You've got these stat correlations between the between the NCAA and, and the NBA. Tell me a little bit more about what else you've got going on and, um, yeah, what we can expect to find from your work on Nylon Calculus. Yeah, well, so, yeah, I have a, I have a bunch of different tools up, and, and I, I store them all on uh, the Nylon Calculus website, which... You know, folks should be reading for other other stuff anyway, because there's there's a lot of people who do some great work there. Um, but uh, yeah, I have that's where I put all my draft models. I have the 
player comparison stuff so you can see um, you know what do different college players compare to and then I also do one for um, finding season comparisons for NBA players um, and those, those can be fun you can you can fiddle with the weights and sort of decide what you think is important for making the comparison and all that um, I also do some stuff with uh, I made a coaching network that I'm gonna have to update at the end of the year here but but it's a it's kind of an interesting interactive web that draws links between, you know, so who is who did this coach act as an assistant for or play for and who's been under them. So you can sort of see these clusters of coaching connections throughout. Um, and it's looking mostly at uh, college basketball. Um, and then I also do some stuff that is sort of a supplement to my draft model stuff that looks at – you can take different coaches and different stats and see whether or not historically players – players uh, have underperformed or overperformed in that particular statistic um, relative to their college performance um, that came out of that system. So you can start to get a sense of different system effects and how they would suppress or um, artificially inflate the numbers for guys coming out of different systems. So it's sort of a supplement to help people um, improve their evaluation of players very interesting so you know it's kind of like a hands-on sort of thing where you can make your own player evaluations too based on what you see um you know using the data in the right sort of way i I think that's really cool uh so anyway i encourage everyone to go check it out on nylon calculus and and what's your twitter handle again lane it is vjl um underscore bball i believe (laughs) i'm sorry to ask you the tough questions (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right, though. He said it right. It's at VJL, capitalized, and then underscore B-ball. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again so much, Lane, for doing the great work that you do. And we'll be following up with you throughout the draft season. Uh, Yeah, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Have have a nice day. Thanks a lot, Lane. And uh, guys, definitely make sure to go follow his work. And as he says, you got to check out Nylon Calculus if you don't already. It's at this point, it's kind of an alma mater for me. Although that, it's weird saying it like that because it like that <laughs> sound that makes it sound like I've moved upward or something, which I totally haven't. You just uh, haven't it, posted there in a while. I just haven't been right Be, because, frankly, the the I love my numbers and everything like that. But I the the way that they approach the game is slightly different. Not bad in any way. They do awesome work over there and there. And by the way, those guys have a lot of eyes on them as far as people in NBA front offices, people re- people really in the know are frequently reading that site. And Absolutely. Like, you know, when I went to Sloan in, in Boston earlier in February, um, you know, talking to NBA execs, talking and having those like real statistical conversations with people in NBA front offices, Nylon Calculus is absolutely bookmarked for those guys. Oh, yeah. They're checking out what's going on on the, fretting, uh, on the cutting edge of statistical analysis mm-hmm. in basketball. Um, that's absolutely the the site on the internet, the the public place that has the most uh, eyeballs on it is Nylon Calculus. Yeah, no, former guest of the program and probably future guest as well, Ian Levy has, has done a spectacular job editing over there. They're, yep. uh, they've done a really great job. Very impressive. And Lane's stuff as well is we, we've looked at it in the past. And to me, it just continually amazes me that by a, a larger overall metric comparison, his, his models have outperformed NBA general managers who's, li- who's like, you know, 50% of their job around this right. time of year is only to do this. And they have so many more resources than he does in terms of money and people watching the games and all that. And he's still the, in on the one hand that showcases the quality of lanes uh, work. And on the other, it showcases how difficult it is to make NBA draft picks with a high rate of success. Yeah. And I, and I wonder if that's, you know, 
changing a little bit as statistical analysis comes more into the NBA, as GMs kind of hop on this money ball train, Mm -hmm. if that'll start to change just because instead of ignoring the stats like guys have done before, instead of doing the looking good in jeans method of prospect analysis, instead they are looking at these numbers, putting it into a holistic approach with with the scouting numbers and, uh, you know, I guess, personality profiles, which I think are important, uh, can now all of a sudden use that information all together and, and make the most intelligent choice possible. Yeah, I found it into this, and because we're having him on, this is the first time I've looked really, really closely at his most recent metrics, which, of course, he only put up today. I, I was interested to see uh, Russell have such a large advantage over, the, especially as far as a star percentage, which you said is like over 75%. That's... That's pretty remarkable, and I was, I was, you know, I did a lot of work with Lane's models last year. There was no guy that even approached seventy five percent as far as just not even remotely close. And last year was considered one of the strongest classes, right at the top. Do the Jazz have the pieces to trade for the number one pick? <laughs> I think they'd probably have to get lucky to jump into that one. But yeah. I mean, if you're going by Lane's models only, there are a couple of potential guys on there who you could be, you know. Again, on bylanes models, like Justice Winslow, for example, the, the Jazz do potentially need a wing. And I haven't been the hugest on him, but again, I've watched an extremely limited period of time. And Lane's models have him fifth by the EWP ranking. But most scouting consensus has him sort of more in the Jazz's range, that, that in, the, in yeah. the, the late lottery. So if he happens to be there, and if you're drafting based on this type of a model, you might have a big win for yourself by getting a guy like that. Dakota Schmidt had a piece on him yeah. on Salt City Hoops a couple uh-huh. of weeks ago, and, and I thought that was an interesting read. So if you're curious on that, I mean, there are just so many possibilities with the Jazz in this year's draft. They could take the pick and, and use it on one of these players. You know, especially if someone were to fall, or you can see today they're already putting together the pieces in place to make a trade mm-hmm. at the draft on draft day for some sort of piece involving their pick, involving these guys like Jack Cooley and Bryce uh, Bryce Cotton, uh, Chris Johnson, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to put it together for one big piece that can help the Jazz win now. Absolutely, and if such a trade potentially maybe involved the Jazz moving down in this year's draft, swapping a pick with somebody, then this or out again, of it. or out of it, but if it involved moving down in this first round, then this ana- something like Lane's analysis, if the Jazz have something similar going on, could work out really well for them. Maybe they want to draft the DeLon Wright, who the, who could be there in the 20s, who Lane has in the 10, you know, Lane yeah, has in the top true. 10, or maybe they could get like a, a Chris Dunn or somebody like that from Providence that Lane's got rated really highly as well. So so it's an interesting sort of way to look at things. Yeah, it'd be fun to see DeLon Wright in a jazz uniform after be. succeeding so well in a Utah Ute uniform. All right, well, let's go ahead and take another break. On the other side, we're going to go around the NBA, talk about everything that's happened in the NBA in the last week. That's next on the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700. Talking hoops and the association. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Welcome back into the Salt City Hoop Show. My name's Andy Larson, Ben Doust on the other side of the table. We're watching in awe as Kentucky just destroys West Virginia. Right now, the game's 33-11 to with seven minutes left in the first half. Um, that's almost unfair. It is unfair. <laughs> Not almost unfair. It's definitely unfair. All right. Well, we, we have a lot to talk about in this Around the NBA segment, so let's get into it. The first, we had a, a passionate discussion as we planned the show earlier today about this NBA awards season. There's a, a lot to discuss, but I, I think you think that there are a lot of questions, and I think it's more clear-cut. And it's probably me just being an idealist, as I always am, that <laughs> if, if the voters were as informed as they all should be, I think that several of these as races would are. be... 
I'm not going to make any claims about that, but if all the voters were as informed <laughs> as they should be, then I think several of these races would be really close. But in reality, you might be right that a few of them, like MVP, for example, will start there. I think there are actually four realistic candidates, and it would become— What are those four? I think that, I think it's uh, uh, Curry, Harden, Westbrook, and LeBron. Okay. And I think that if the Pelicans somehow managed to come back and make the playoffs, which they're not going to do, but if they did, I would think you'd have to put Anthony Davis in the conversation as well. In reality, as you, meant, you were mentioning during our preparation, I, I think Steph is probably going to run away with it. Best player on the best team narrative tends to be pretty strong— in recent years and now. And he's fun. And he's and that's not to say that he's not deserving. I, I believe it would be really close right now, but if I had to vote right now, I think I would vote for him. So I don't I have no okay. issue with that. And I, I hate the best player on the best team narrative, but in this case he also happens to potentially be the most valuable player. And there is a reason why best player on the best team has gained popularity over the years, and that's that individuals are hugely important in the NBA and there's a reason why the best teams very often have some of the best individual players on them. Yeah. Right. right. And and Steph definitely fits that category, but I, I you know, I think it's more than just best player on best team for him. I, I think it is yeah. his style of play. Um he's kind of ushered in a, in a, a new offensive pace, I guess, than mm-hmm. the rest of the league. I mean, the Warriors play like so 20% faster than the rest of the league. Um it's just like yeah, I, I think there's so much going Steph's way that I would be shocked if he didn't win it at this point. Even if he were injured for the last two weeks, I almost think he might win it. Um, I think one of those other guys would have to have an insane push to end the year. Plus, he would yeah. have to play kind of badly, or like you said, or they'd have to rest him a bunch of games, maybe or something. Even like then, that. yeah, I think if it's if it's Steve Kerr's choice, they don't. Yeah. Uh, how about Defense Player of the Year, though? I, I think this one's straightforward, though. You. Uh, you don't. I mean, I think there are a lot of candidates. I think again, there's one that will win. Unfortunately, and I, I wrote an article about this a few weeks ago on Basketball Insiders, is that I believe that I, based on what the voters are going to be thinking, I believe that DeAndre Jordan still may win, which I, I, I'm not kidding. I'm, uh, something will break in my house if that happens. <laughs> because, because there, okay, I, I should have prefaced this whole conversation with this. I care about awards than, more than most people do. I yes. believe they're parts of player legacies. I, yes. When you look back at a guy, you say four-time All-Star, or uh-huh. you say former Defensive Player of the Year, or former MVP. Those are things that we use to assess players later on, and I think it's important for that reason, and I think deserving guys should win. DeAndre Jordan's team which is like 17th in defensive rating or something like that, is better defensively when he leaves the floor. And yet, this dude might win Defensive Player of the Year because his coach went out and did a bunch of campaigning for him and because he blocked shots into the stands, which is like, if that's the only criteria, then Rudy Gobert should have had this locked up a while ago, right? <laughs> um, and you, you think that Draymond Green is a pretty decent lock to win it. I, I hope that's the case because he's my pick currently. But I don't know that everyone sees it that way. I think there's. I think DeAndre has a case. I think that Bogut has yeah. a case, despite the time he's missed with injury. And I also think that Kawhi Leonard is making a real push for it here at the end of the year. He's been insane. Recently. He's been he's been great. Don't get me wrong. And he's making steals that really no other NBA player does. Yeah. Just like picking the ball away from opponents. Just you know, this is mine now. Sort of steals. Uh, but. Draymond Green plays on the number one defense, and he's been the one player that has changed the way that Golden State's defense plays. And I think that's the biggest difference uh, that will, again, if you're looking at the narrative of why the Warriors are so good this year, the Bogut's kind of always been there. I mean, not healthy, obviously, but Draymond moving into the starting lineup changes how their defense plays and, and was kind of the biggest step in 
terms of them becoming elite elite. Yeah, I agree. I've, and if I could vote, he would be my winner. I hope everyone stays it that way. Uh, six man might be the most open of them all. Uh, who would you have at the moment? Would you have Rudy Gobert in the conversation? Yeah, I mean, if you just look at those criteria, then he fits. yeah, he fits. He hasn't started the majority of games and won't. So yeah, I mean, six, he's a pretty decent choice for six man. But I don't in terms of the spirit of the award, he's not going to win it. They're just uh, he didn't have an impact as the six man, yeah. right? And at no point was he really the six. He man. wasn't ever a sixth man. He no, came right. off the bench, but he wasn't a six. So, so no one's really going to vote for him. I don't know. Um, I don't even know who the best candidates are. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been a little bit weird this season. You could you could look at maybe Manu, but he's had a, a maybe a worse year than expectations. Taj Gibson's been um, hurt. Taj Gibson's been hurt. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a weak year. Jamal Crawford, you could he's say, been hurt too. Might yeah, not play yeah. for the rest of the year. Yeah. Like that's it's crazy. Yeah, that that one it doesn't even like. There's a few others that have many deserving candidates, but then one that's kind of risen above the crop. On this one, I don't even know how many truly deserving candidates there are because I think people have realized that you should play your best players more and just start. Them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that um, is that is a smart approach. How yeah. about coach of the year? Coach of the year, I think most people have considered a two man race all year between Mike Budenholzer and and Steve Kerr. I think Kerr is probably inching ahead right now. Because See, I don't think so. I think if you look at, sorry, I, I should let you finish. Oh no, statement. just. Because just because Atlanta's lost a few games recently. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true. But if you look at, again, kind of like wins above expectation, that's what defines that coach of the year award. You know, when we see guys like Scotty Brooks win it or like uh, who was a Toronto coach that won it and then got fired the next year or like George Carl, for yeah, example. Yeah. You know, it, it's kind of wins above expectation wins that coach of the year yeah. award. And Mike Budenholzer's Atlanta Hawks are absolutely so far above where people thought they were. Uh, that I think it's it's a bigger difference. I mean, obviously, the Warriors are better than people thought, but people are going to attribute that success to Steph Curry getting better, Draymond uh, Green, Clay Dre. Thompson. Yeah. I mean, Andrew Bogut being healthy, that sort of thing, rather than the coaching of Mike Budenholzer by taking five non-stars, putting them together in this incredibly synergistic lineup that's been so successful. And, yeah. and, and you know, while Kyle Korver's been out, it hasn't worked as well. Yeah, I want. I hope Budenholzer wins. He was my preseason pick. I can look smart. But, <laughs> nice. uh, and also, mentioned it earlier on the show, Show. I want to shout out both Brad Stevens and Frank Vogel. I think both should be in that top five-ish consideration along with those other two yeah. because of the jobs they've done. If you look at the They're rosters... They're losing coaches in the East. But look at the rosters they've got, especially Stevens. Yeah, no, I, I think they're both good coaches. Don't get me wrong, but I, I just don't see them as top five coach of the year candidates yeah, fair enough all right we got a few other ones to the other yeah. around the nbas to get to yeah we've got sorry a lot of news stories but we'll just mention them quickly uh preseason games next year in china that'll be a little bit interesting it looks like there'll be a clippers versus hornets game i don't even know if it's clippers versus hornets i or, think they just said both the clippers and hornets will play games okay so maybe they maybe they'll play chinese teams maybe they'll play each other who knows who they'll play maybe they'll do like a little four game tournament yeah it's good that the nba is capitalizing on that uh john calipari we're watching him right at the moment uh doing some coaching some Pretty good coaching, I think you could say, with mm-hmm. Kentucky once again dominating. He he may be thirty six fifteen is the score. Goodness, oh wow! So he's doing some real good coaching. Uh, there is some talk that he might be looking to move to the NBA potentially as a coach. I I wouldn't do it if I were him. <laughs> I mean, if you were at, like, I just think say, that the what's the upside is that everyone recognizes that you're a good coach, which everyone already does. The downside is that everyone sees that you are a limited coach who can only succeed at the college level because you're a good recruiter and because you have the best players all the time. Here's a just a quick question for you before we move on to the next one. If it was last year and John Calipari was coming out, would you have considered him as a with the Jazz? 
I guess I would have considered yeah. him in the same way that, like, you know, you look at, like, Fred Hoiberg, for example. Yeah. But I don't think he would have been my first choice. I mean, certainly not over Quinn Snyder. And even over guys like Mike Longabardi, I think I would have preferred him compared to John Calipari. Okay. Which and is weird to say. Like, John Calipari is coaching royalty, but... Just at an NBA level, I think it's kind of been shown that I don't think his thing works where you might have a better chance of getting one of the smart assistants, move them up, and, and have some success with it like the Jazz have with Quinn Snyder. Yeah, definitely. Uh, a couple injuries as well. Uh, Patrick Beverly, is, I think it looks like he's only going to miss a week to 10 days uh, with a, a ligament in his wrist, unless I'm mistaken or have missed the most recent news there so he'll be back before the playoffs and i don't like that guy anyway so we don't have to talk about him for that long <laughs> kevin durant also really he's hurt indefinitely yeah at the moment and so to, i mean let's be honest i think that means the rest of the season yeah very likely which means to me that they have no chance of beating golden state in the first i already right. didn't think they had much chance at this point without I, kevin durant i might be picking a sweep in that series honestly like i think golden state might be that much better than them especially because oklahoma city can't defend anybody anymore and they won't have serge Ibaka back for that series because of his own injury right um i think they're that's just too tough of a yeah their interior defender is now ennis Cantor, and that yeah. is really problematic he's been great for them offensively a perfect fit but they've been like 24th in the league in defense since the trade so so they can't defend anybody, and that's a problem when you're playing the Golden State Warriors. Steve Nash retired, which is a bummer. Yeah. He was he was a legitimately game-changing player as a point guard. I mean, just incredible. I, I can't say enough good things about Steve Nash. He's probably the best shooter of all time. One of them. I, w- I would say the best. Steph's barking up that tree real okay, quick sure, right now. Okay, sure, but yeah. Steph, but Steph's only played five years. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, I, I think if you look at... Total career, you look at things like free throw shooting, three point shooting, field goal shooting, uh, difficulty of shots. I, I I think it's Steve Nash and not yeah. Ray Allen and not Reggie Miller. And the offenses that he commanded. I saw a stat from somebody on Twitter that was like from from o two to o nine or some span of years right in that area. His his uh, his offenses never ranked lower than second in the league. It was like first first second 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 first second first. Yeah, that's first, absurd. Like, which is completely ridiculous. He and it, and it's not coaching at that point. You know, that's like you know being in in three different environments to be able to do that is, is pretty special. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Let's do LOL Lakers really quick. LOL Lakers. Do we have the music? I don't believe so. Oh, it's Dave. We have Dave. We don't have normally John. Normally, John's got that music saved up. So just imagine. Yakety sax. We'll get some yakety sax playing. But first of all, they they did have a game. Thank there you. There you go. Okay. Oh, and I had it wrong anyway, so it's a good Jesus. That's just <laughs> terrible right there. I had the wrong song. Uh, yeah, they beat Minnesota. We should never let you sing on the radio. So, yeah, please. That's not what I'm here for. Uh, beat Minnesota. They gave out some Linsanity DVDs. Yeah, so that the I was obviously well. Okay, so I was in LA for that Lakers Jazz game this weekend, and my surprise as I walk in the door is they're giving away Linsanity DVDs at the door. <laughs> despite there has been this angriness between Jeremy Lin and the Lakers fan base organization, everyone thinks Jeremy Lin is soft. Jeremy Lin thinks that the Lakers are crazy and Kobe Bryant's insane, which is probably true. And so just them giving away the very last shards of Linsanity DVDs to everyone who they can possibly find a taker for. 
I thought was kind of funny. That's definitely entertaining. They are only three games back in the win column of catching Orlando and being fifth. Which would make it significantly less likely that they get to keep their pick. Right now, there's about an 80% chance they would keep their pick. If they move down to the fifth spot, we could see like a, a 60, 55% chance that they keep but their them pick, winning, which would be kind of fun. But them winning three more games than Orlando over the, over the next like 12 or whatever seems unlikely to me. And then the last one, this was highlighted in a, a Grantland article today, the Grantland staff shoot-around, uh, noting uh, several other teams... Twitter accounts that tweeted exuberant notes after they won games. Right, because uh, they're is, excited. Right, so the Cavaliers and the Hawks and the, the Pacers tweeted up uh, hashtag Pacers win with an exclamation Woo. point and that whole thing. And then the Lakers, after winning, tweeted Jordan Clarkson's last second foul shots pushed the Lakers past Minnesota in overtime, period. Wah, wah. That was the whole tweet. <laughs> so you can tell how excited they are to be Even their games. social media people are sad when they win. Yeah. Lovely. Anyway, that's your State of the Lakers update. LOL Lakers, our favorite segment of every show. I don't know if that's true, but it's a fun one. It's fun, yeah. Um, uh, thanks again. All right, so let's go ahead and move on. Uh, actually, no, we got to take a break at this point. But on the other hand, on the other side, we're going to talk about the Jazz's schedule coming up uh, and, and where they may pick in this lottery. Uh, we'll kind of look at the, the tank rank, if you will, not to say that the Jazz are, are tanking, but where they'll end up in the lottery coming up next on the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Welcome back into the show. I'm your co-host, Ben Dowsett, here with Andy Larson, who is letting me open this segment kindly, and we'll see how I do with it. (laughs) Well, we, We wanted to start this one off briefly. So far, so good. I'm doing all right. We wanted to start this one off briefly with we've got the Kentucky game currently going on versus West Virginia. They're up 26 at the half. They're thoroughly, thoroughly dominating this West Virginia team. But we thought it was interesting that the Jazz's own Trevor Booker sent out a tweet about 19 minutes ago saying, if West Virginia comes back and wins, I'll give all of my followers $100. Good nice. luck to all. We're all rooting for West Virginia. We really are because he's got... 22, what did we say, 27,000? 22,000 followers. 22,000 followers, meaning he would be paying like $2 million. But Trevor Booker has that. He's an NBA player. Like, if anyone can follow through on the I'll give $100 to all my followers thing, it's Trevor Booker. Like, $2 million out of his income, you know, he's making $5 million this year. Half of that goes to taxes. So even if he does, you know, if, if, Kentucky loses this game somehow down 26 in the most remarkable comeback in NCAA history. He would still have half a million dollars left to live on. I I I think it's okay. It's not could, the worst mistake he can make. And I could really use that hundo. So uh, <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's make that happen. Go West Virginia. But uh, anyway, before we got into the last bit, last bit of jazz, wanted to uh, ask you a question or two about you took a trip over this past weekend and yeah. you actually went and covered the Jazz in California when they went to play Los Angeles and Golden State. Just give me like a, a brief thirty second, forty five second rundown of some highlight. You were with Tony Jones a lot, which had to be entertaining <laughs> on its own. Yeah, the the man um is is a is a treasure. Really um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I think it, it was a lot of fun. So this was my first road trip actually covering the team, you know, going on and and it's it's a very different environment because you know as a media member when you're covering the home team at home there are 20 30 guys interviewing every player. It's a big huddle around them and you know you're you're able to get less. On this trip it was only me, Tony Jones and Mike Sorensen of the Desert News. And so, you know, all of a sudden, these things, all these interviews that were big huddles turn into one-on-ones or two-on-ones, and you're able to get into a lot more detail about what coaches are talking about, what what players are talking about. 
um, and what's really going on in their heads, which is really kind of what you want to what you want to see. So that was cool. Um, Single non basketball highlight. Uh, the Exploratorium Museum in San Francisco is amazing. The best okay. museum I've ever been to. Okay. Um, biking across the Golden Gate Bridge was cool too. Nice. All right, I've walked across the Golden Gate Bridge. It was a good time. Yeah. It took a while. <laughs> no, it's it's bigger than you think. I yeah. think that's true. And then L.A. is kind of goofy. I mean, the best part about L.A. was they put their media on, like, row two yeah. behind the basket. So I saw pictures from that. That, that, that was really neat. Cool. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's cool to, ha- again, have that sort of perspective uh, traveling with the team. It is legitimately, like, tiring. I had a 6.20 a.m. flight after <laughs> the 8.30 p.m. mountain start Ugh. of the that Wizards game that came on that Wednesday before. That's just gross. Flew with a bunch of high school cheerleaders. That was uh, awful at 6.20 a.m. Um, but, like, it, it was fun. It, w- it was a great trip. Um, Jazz went one-on-one. Golden State's a cool arena. Got a free Lynn Sanity DVD, as previously mentioned. What what more can you ask for? Not much. All right. Speaking of the Jazz, let's talk about a couple more <laughs> things idea. to them before we get done. So these recent losses, like we said, they've lost four or five, unfortunately, after a really strong stretch before that, before uh, after the All-Star game. But there's a silver lining to this, which is that... The Jazz are still neck and neck with several teams for that lottery range in terms of what their pick is most likely to be. And there is there's definitely a difference there. Like there's a difference between picking 8th and picking 12th, for yeah. example. And if the if they do decide to make a trade like the one we've been talking about, there's a big difference between trading the 8th pick and trading the 12th pick. Like that there's a large value gap there. So in the one sense it's kind of okay almost that they've lost these games especially if the process continues to be there wouldn't you say yeah no i i agree i mean having gordon hayward out is makes a whole lot of sense for the jazz it's not that they're tanking again it's just that it, these games don't matter that much you can find out what your current players can do on their own and then yeah if your pick goes up as a result that's that's cool too and, and you know if as we look at it the jazz are currently 17 and a half games back of the knicks for the the top spot so it you know kind of a reverse standings if so you will. So they're not going to get there. So they're not going to get there. But spots 9, 10 and 11 are all only 17 games back. So we're only actually half a game out of the ninth pick right now. Okay. Uh, right now we'd be picking 12th, but only and, half a game behind these teams, Brooklyn, Charlotte, and Indiana. And I was going to say, all of those teams are in contention for a playoff Right. They right all now. definitely want to win their games in order to get that playoff cash, cash, cash. Definitely. Now, the Jazz do play several weak teams over the remainder of the season. They have Denver twice. They have Minnesota once and Sacramento twice. So those could be some wins, very likely will be some wins, I think you could say. But they've also got the Thunder, they've got Phoenix, they've got Memphis and Portland, Dallas, Houston to close that the That last year. four especially is, is a really hard stretch. Yeah, so you know if you come in down one game or so for that ninth pick with four games left, you could very well end up getting it. Um, speaking of scheduling, let's look at the Jazz's next few games. Let's do it. So they play tomorrow night in Denver. That's the first of those two Denver matchups, which you have to think is... Likely going to be a win. I don't know. Denver's been really feisty recently. They have played a lot better since they made the coaching change, which is a major indictment of both Brian Shaw and the players (laughs) themselves, as we mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but they they have been playing better. Gallinari's been playing great. He's a lot of fun. Um, I I think at Denver, I I think that's a more challenging game than we we may think. I I think that could be a loss. I mean, they they beat the Pelicans in double overtime the other night. Uh, I I think that that... 
prevent some challenges, especially the pace that Denver has been playing at recently. Yeah, and if Hayward doesn't play, I think I would agree, although he's probable to play. He is probable to play. Rodney Hood, as, as previously mentioned, is out for tomorrow. Okay, and then Saturday night back home. I'm stoked for this one just because we're going to get to talk to Ennis. It's the return uh, of Ennis Cantor. return of Ennis Cantor. Oklahoma City is coming to town that night. They, we, there won't be any Durant. There won't be any Ibaka, but it's okay because there will be Ennis Cantor. Putting and, you on the spot, what do you want to ask Ennis? What do you most want to talk to him about? Um, I don't know that I'll necessarily have any questions that the that other folks aren't going to ask him or haven't already asked him. What you are know? you most curious about then? I, I really am curious to see, and who knows if he's going to answer this question completely honestly or whether he might sort of uh, traipse around it a little bit. But I, I really do want to ask him what he sees as the largest tangible differences between Utah and Oklahoma City. But yeah. as far as the, the way he's treated, the way he gets along with his teammates, the way he's utilized on the court, of course, I think we can see some of that. I'm interested in all those things. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I'm, I'm excited for that as well. Then Monday, they play Minnesota at Minnesota um, on a one-game road trip that just makes all the Jazz beat writers so happy. Yeah, they got to they gotta love that. And and you got to hope the Jazz might have a little bit of a better effort than the last time against <laughs> Minnesota. And then again, they play Denver at home on Wednesday, April 1st, Fool's Day. Maybe the Jazz could have win then. Yeah. All yeah. right. So I'm thinking two and two over the last, over the next four? Two and two, or maybe even three and one, honestly. Should be good. I mean, they're six and four of their last 10, so yeah. maybe we could see that come out. All right. Well, thanks again so much for listening, everyone, to the Salt City Hoops show. Check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or at saltcityhoops.com. It's another great episode of the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700.